Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, as many of you know, both of us went to seminary. That's actually where we met. So we got a pair of Master of Divinity degrees and a family to go along with them. So that was a nice little addition <laughs> yes, that you got. Uh, and we really enjoyed the seminary experience. I mean, it was oftentimes pretty grueling as we waded through large theological texts and tried to navigate th- through biblical Greek and Hebrew. Uh, but I personally wouldn't go back and change my decision to go to seminary. I feel like for me, it was really formative in many ways from introducing me to Christian thinkers to helping me think through different theological ideas and study them and do good exegesis uh, and just all of those things. And so I w- wouldn't change having gone, even though it was grueling at some points. Right. Yeah, me neither. And I wouldn't even have changed the program that we went through Uh a lot of seminaries now are like cutting off units to make the MDiv a little bit more, um, I guess, easier, quicker. I don't know, more attainable. But I wouldn't have even changed um, the elements of how many units we had to take. There was just a lot that not only did I grow in knowledge of the scripture and understanding of original languages and how to even get to central truths of text and all that, but uh, it was absolutely formative in my own like walk with Christ. So it wasn't just head knowledge, but genuinely changed my own um, maturity of my own faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have the Master of Divinity degrees, which is kind of like one of the standard degrees that um, pastors get. Um, But there's often this question of whether it's actually necessary to get a seminary education to be an effective or well-qualified pastor. Helpful, certainly, people would say, but is it necessarily required for a pastor to go to seminary? This is a question that has kind of arisen in recent decades, and according to the trends of the last couple decades, American evangelicals don't seem to think that it is necessarily uh, required for a pastor to go to seminary. Like in generations past, you would be hard-pressed to be seen as a respectable pastor without a seminary degree. Um, But that has begun to shift as that credential has become uh, less important in the minds of many evangelicals uh, to the point where many of them don't even know what the word seminary means. Like they go to church every Sunday, they have a pastor, but they, they, they went to seminary even maybe, but they don't even know what a seminary is. I mean, that was certainly true of myself. Like even going to seminary, I didn't know that I was going to seminary. I thought I was just getting a master's degree. I didn't realize it was seminary itself. Right. Yeah. So it has certainly fallen in um, prominence in terms of it being a requirement. I think especially in kind of low church settings. I think if you go look at the Presbyterians or Lutherans, it's still very much part of the culture of their clergy to have a seminary education. But, you know, a lot of Baptists and uh, other low church evangelicals, it's less of a requirement. And oftentimes it's overlooked entirely. Right. I think maybe more so for the background you came from where everyone knew about the greatest seminaries like in town and which ones were really good um, locally and which ones were great in terms of across America where my church background like no one knew seminary at all and it certainly wasn't even a question for pastors like where did you go to school no one cared about that Right. They saw the affirmation of that pastoral position in different ways. 
um, schooling wasn't a factor at all, I would say, um, among the churches that I grew up in. Right. And that's becoming the norm kind of more broadly speaking, where uh, evangelicals just don't seem to care about uh, academic credentials when it comes to pastoral leadership. There are some on the other side of that who are kind of raising alarm bells because of that trend, saying like, hey, we disregard seminary training to our own detriment as a movement and have been kind of uh, loud about the fact like, yes, we do need to require this of our pastors. And I think I should say from the outset that um, I have known folks and served with folks who didn't have seminary degrees and they were fantastic pastors. And I've also uh, seen and served with folks who did have seminary degrees and their pastoral leadership was two thumbs down. Right. And so it's not the ultimate determinative thing. Uh, at least not for me. It's not um, a deal breaker one way or the other. But today I thought that we would talk about uh, the question of formal theological training as it relates to the pastorate. Like what are the things informing that conversation and what are the good points that people are making on both sides of that equation? So do pastors need seminary? And if they don't need it, how highly recommended is it? That's the conversation I want to have today, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. So does a pastor need to go to seminary to be effective and well-qualified? Well, let's take a moment, shall we, and just define what seminary is. In our intro, we brought up the fact that a lot of people, uh, Jesus-loving, church-going people, uh, don't really know what seminary is. So I just wanted to define it real quick to let you know exactly what it is. So at seminary, it's a higher learning institution that offers degree programs such as the Master of Divinity degree. That's the degree that Tamara and I have, which is a pretty lengthy program that includes training in theology, preaching, biblical exposition, original languages, church history, spiritual formation, and pastoral care. And so it's a lot of units. It's a pretty big degree. But seminaries, they also offer... Uh, other programs, such as Master of Arts degrees, which can be, um, they're robust, certainly, but they're not as lengthy as the uh, MDiv program. Uh, and they can focus on either like New Testament, Old Testament, or just theology generally. Then there's the Master of Theology, not to be confused with the Master of Arts in Theology. It's the, the Master of Theology, or the THM is how it's abbreviated, which is more of an academic uh, theological degree. And then they also offer doctoral programs, including PhDs and a Doctor of Ministry, uh, which is a little bit less academic. Well, it's, it's considerably less academic than a PhD 
uh, and it's uh, much more uh, practical in its focus. Like the dissertation that you write for your doctor of ministry is that uh, it's much more related to ministry as opposed to being related to uh, theology or church history or something like that. It's much more of a practical emphasis in the doctor of ministry degree or the demon degree is how they abbreviate it. Uh, but Tamara, to your mind, what are the most important parts of seminary training uh, when it comes to being an effective pastor? And do you really need to go to seminary to get that training? So I would say um, seminary, what seminary does really well is it trains um, it trains you on how to understand the biblical text um, and it also cre- gives you a lot of guardrails of how to go about understanding it. Um, I often just laugh about looking back at some of my like devotional journals that I had and the way that I would interpret scripture just in my own reading of it during quiet time versus how I understand scripture to be interpreted after seminary. Um even the value of commentaries, the value of what types of resources are actually good resources when you're trying to study scripture, all of that completely changed for me post-seminary and during seminary. Um, There was a lot of really wacky interpretations that I had in my devotionals. And I think my heart was in the right place, right? Like it, (laughs) I was told to, to do your quiet time, do your prayer time. And there I was like reading out of the New Testament and I was just like writing down whatever crazy thoughts were coming to my mind of how that text fit my life. Um, And the greatest issue was it always started with me, right? Like I thought it was written specifically for me in that stage of life. So um, I think seminary is incredibly valuable at creating resources, tools, and guardrails of how to understand and interpret scripture. Uh, So you're not just like going off of your own thoughts on what does this passage mean for me today, which there's a lot of books and devotionals out there that that's where they start. Right. Here's one little verse that you get to pull out of Psalms and like, what does this mean for you? And that is a terrible place to start. Right. With your understanding of scripture. Um, Do I think the only way to get at that is through seminary? No, of course not. Uh, But it's a lot easier to sit underneath the teaching of these professors that have been studying this one element of scripture for their whole life. Um, It's it's invaluable to to have the opportunity to do that. Certainly, you can read some really good books, take, you know, sit under some really good church courses, I think, of how to go about understanding and interpreting scripture, or at least just with providing you the guardrails of here, the parameters of how you ought to understand scripture, like read it within context. Make sure you're not just pulling things out of context. Um, start at the beginning of the letter, like what are the themes? What's happening here? Uh, I think... There is a bit of fear that preaching and teaching is moving away from the actual expositing of scripture and the actual like intention of what the author meant. And it's more moving into, um, here's the great series and theme of this uh, passage that I want to talk about today. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. 
So again, I don't think seminary is um, the only way to get to the importance of learning how to understand scripture, but it certainly is incredibly helpful. And if you have the opportunity to do it, absolutely. Yes. I would say you should be doing that as a pastor. Yeah. I think, um, you mentioned like being able to read and study things outside of, you know, the formal institution and yeah, there are resources you can go on Amazon. You can find books on preaching, on uh, leadership issues, how to lead a church, how to develop a ministry philosophy, how to manage staff, how to uh, study the Bible, how to understand church history and the different denominational movements, uh, how to lead and engage in spiritual formation, like what does that look like, uh, how do we actually do discipleship. There's resources you can read on that, all those things. Um, I think there's two things that a seminary or any kind of a formal institution uh, or degree program will provide you. One is curation that you're going to be helped to frame the resources that are going to be the most helpful to you from the people who have been in those situations. Uh, Because where we went to seminary, a lot of the professors were also pastors. And so, or they they at least had pastoral experience, whether they uh, were currently in full-time ministry or they were serving on their church part-time. A lot of them were doing the very thing that we were training to do. And so they were not only creating uh, resources, because many of them were very... Uh, skilled scholars and writers, uh, but they were curating the resource list that we would want. Well, m- w- let's say that you can get that curation from, you know, you download the different uh, required readings of programs. I think the other thing is that you're learning that in community. You're not only getting the resources in, by way of the reading materials, but you're getting the human resources of how to specifically work through a lot of these things in dialogue. I think when you're learning uh, theological truths, when you're doing spiritual formation, um, when you're trying to figure out a philosophy of ministry or work through leadership issues, uh, having the resources of people who are, are not only experienced in those things, but are academically trained and have studied for years, uh, and also your peers who are uh, learning alongside you, like those are the things that are going to be invaluable. Because yes, you can read the books. Yes, you can learn a lot of things. Yes, you can have cohorts of people that you interact with. I think there's a it, it's all packaged up when you go to seminary. Well, that's what I was just going to say. You can go out and like find all of, the, of those things a la carte, and you have to work really hard to not only find the really good resources, to find uh, the books that teach you how to find the resources, and then to find the community of people that have the knowledge, the experience, the passion, and the calling to to do all of those things in ministry as well, um, and to have them like bounce ideas off of you or even to correct you, right? Like you can find all of those things outside of the institution um, of education, but it's just a whole lot easier uh, to have it all in one place and to know that's what they actually focus in. Uh, it's it's just a less work, I guess, for you as an individual. It means a lot more money than it's buying an Amazon wish list of books. Yeah, and... But it's less work to make sure you're finding the right types of things because there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and you might find a book on preaching, but that's not the book you should have found on preaching. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is yeah. not the one you should have added to your list. So even just knowing what are the good resources, what are the things that I should be checking on, um, 
you have the the trust of the institution and the authority of the institution and the respect of the institution um, behind everything that it's giving to you. Yeah, I think the idea of coming under authority is an important thing because I think it's like just off the bat, I think about like learning New Testament Greek. And knowing a little bit of Greek can make you really dangerous in terms of the ideas that you come mm, up with. Yes. Uh, and so you need guidance in like how are you interpreting things? Is that Are you doing the right things with the language in terms of the way the language works? I need someone who's an expert to help me understand yeah. uh, the little bit of knowledge that I have, how to wield it and refine it in a way that's going to yes. be helpful and not take me into weird places. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, even if you do that, hopefully your systematic theology that you've been raised up with in the church is strong enough to withstand mm-hmm. that. But you can do some weird things that yeah. uh, you don't even know you're doing weird things. You think you're learning stuff. Um, but it's just having that, uh, having the authority re- uh, over you is not like the thing that's like stamping you down. It's like the thing that's actually like protecting you right? in terms of your own mm-hmm. formation and learning process. It's a guided learning process. That's so we, such a good we point. Need to be discipled right and i think of probably one of the best examples of that like you talk about the language specifically is it really there was this like i don't know i guess i'll call it a trend that went around about the greek word agape oh yes good old agape versus uh phileo right and there was really this build out of the difference of this kind of like friendly love and then agape is like this love that is only for god the father um, and that was preached through a whole lot of different churches, and that was in a whole lot of articles. But that wasn't actually true of the Greek language in terms of deciphering those two forms of love out in the way that it was being preached. Yeah, someone just kind of made that up and say, oh, see, like, phileo means brotherly love, and agape is unconditional love. And so if you phileo someone, that that's a, a lesser love, and you need right. agape love. But phileo is familial love, and agape is a love of commitment. Yeah. Those are the same thing. It's right. a synonym it's, that's used. Exactly. In, they're and, used interchangeably. And there have been entire series yes. built out around, around the mis- this misinterpretation yeah. of this verse. Yeah. That could have been solved if the person who came yes. up with that idea said, hey, Greek professor, I'm, can you, I run this idea by you? Yeah. And be like, oh, yeah, for sure. No, that's not a thing. Right. And then we never would have got that idea. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So. And I imagine wherever that started, someone was doing some kind of Greek word study. And they study, thought they really right? found something. They, yeah. Um, so it's easy to to find <laughs> kind of the studying of the languages, but to fall underneath the authority of somebody. I just think of the Greek professor that we had. Like, that's what he did. That's what he dedicated his life to um, instead of just doing a really quick Greek word search online and good old Google helps provide some information to you. Like, sure, you might have put a couple of hours into that word search online, but you need the backing of the understanding of the whole language. Of the which, 15 years of study of somebody else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was just an example that as you were explaining that, I thought of, well, here's a really good example of somebody probably having good intentions, trying to do the groundwork of the language, but maybe didn't actually sit underneath the authority of somebody who spends their whole life in that field. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've run something by a professor and he's been like, oh yeah, no, you, you missed this on this part. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. And they're like, that helps further my understanding. But it's kind of like you're, you have that, that uh, sandbox area to play around with that stuff and mm. not hurt anybody. Yes. 
Yeah, like where you you can make some really critical errors and it's safe and you didn't lead anyone in any sort of a direction by that critical error. Because as a pastor, like you're leading people, your role is very significant. Um, and not to say you can't make any mistakes, but it's it feels nice to know you can learn within uh, the confines of seminary and people can nicely correct you and you didn't like destroy anyone's faith. I mean, that's the goal. Yeah. For do no harm. Um, I wanted to look at the pastoral qualifications that were given in the New Testament and kind of see where does the idea of seminary fit into that? Because in the first century, newsflash, they didn't have seminaries. Um, But like, how is that congruent? And uh, in some ways, does it uh, serve something of a counterpoint to what we've just been discussing here? Uh, I want to dive into that, but we'll do that in just a minute. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So let's look at what the New Testament says about what a pastor needs to be qualified and to be well-equipped to be a pastor. And there are two key passages to look at. The first one is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. And Paul writes, Here's a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must also do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If he does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And then the other passage is uh, Titus uh, 1, verses 6 through 9. It says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, 
Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to uh, the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So as we look at these qualifications, it seems like the main thing that Paul focuses on is character. He's like, listen, on two different occasions, he basically lists it out the same way. Pastors should be good spouses, they should be good parents, and they should be good community members. Like basically just people of integrity who are respected in the community. They should be spiritually mature, he adds on uh, later on in the list, and they should be adept enough to teach sound biblical doctrine. But if we just go by like the amount of words Paul uses on the different aspects of those qualifications, the main qualification appears to be character. And then below that is relative level of training and experience, which is not nothing, uh, but it is also not the main qualifier, it would seem. If we're just looking at the weight of the words, you know, the weight of the pages that, that Paul is writing. And, you know, as long as they're competent in those things, that that's kind of the main thing is their character. And then um, they can gain skills in in terms of uh, whatever their pastoral responsibilities are along the way. uh, So insofar as they start with a base level of competence. So as we look at those lists, Tamara, in what ways do you think the American church has often gotten it backwards when we've sought to qualify and ordain pastors? Well, I think a lot of it is kind of built around our culture, right? Like school for a very long time, higher education for a very long time was a sought after qualification. Um, You just think about it uh, among most jobs, you know, they have their list of requirements of here's the degrees that you have to have. Um, And just even within community, like you're seen in some higher regard because you have a, a higher education. And so that has absolutely bled into the qualifications of a pastor within the church. Um, Do I think it's the worst thing? No, but it has come sometimes at the detriment of the character of a pastor and even the passion and the love of a pastor. I have seen plenty of pastors that have all of the great knowledge that seminary provides, but they lack the heart and the care that a pastor is supposed to have to shepherd their flock and to really care for them as individuals. They might be very quick to correct them on doctrine and theology, but they're not equally as quick to be there for them in the midst of some really difficult times in their lives, right? So um, I think it's easy to see how we've prioritized education over the character. Um, And in the current climate of things, unfortunately, you can really see that with some of these mega pastors that have fallen really hard um, because no one was as concerned with their character as they were with maybe the experience or the education. Um, If we might have been a little bit more concerned or detail oriented to figure out, do they have the character of a pastor? Um, maybe they would have never been put into a pastoral role in the very, in the first place. 
Right. Yeah. I think as um, evangelicalism has uh, grown less attached to the idea that pastors uh, need a specific degree, we have traded in an emphasis on credentials to an emphasis on charisma. I think especially mm-hmm. with like the church growth movement, yeah. it's not so much what are your theological credentials, it's how much charisma, leadership charisma you have to uh, draw people in and make this thing explode big. Mm. And I think we've moved from one uh, bad measure of yeah. how qualified a pastor is to another bad measure of how qualified a pastor is because right. it's neither your credentials nor your charisma that qualify you. It's your character. And so in that way, we, we continue to neglect and invert the uh, the level of emphasis that Paul places when he's listing out the various qualifications for a pastor, because he's clear, a pastor needs to be able to teach. A pastor needs to be able to have sound doctrine. A pastor needs to be able to have a, a certain level of maturity that comes from experience. And also the pastor should have some level of charisma. They should be well-known in the community. They should be thought of highly in the, in the, the community that they're serving in. Uh, but all of that is kind of below that they should be above reproach, uh, uh, a husband of one wife and uh, have children who are being well-formed under their spiritual guidance. And I think again and again and again, whatever qualification we want to use as the measuring rod, uh, we tend to not use the most important one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of the credentialism that comes uh, from people of the past who said that you absolutely need that seminary degree or you're not really a pastor – uh, and the more current, like you need that charisma, that's what we're looking for in a pastor that's really going to be um, successful. All those things have, have been backwards and to our detriment to emphasize those things more than we emphasize the character of that pastor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, and so that would seem to argue against like, well, then, yeah, seminary is nice, but like how integral is that to the pastoral qualification in a lot of ways. I think to go back on the other hand, as we're continuing to play both sides of the fence here, uh, there is an argument, and I think it's a valid argument, I think it's a good argument, that uh, the church is suffering for lack of theological depth, and we would do well to promote leaders who are pastor theologians. Recently, Kevin Van Hooser, he uh, wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition that we'll link to in the show notes, uh, in which he argued this. And to be sure, he's been arguing this for years. This is not a new idea for him. He has an entire like book on this this one issue. Oh, I forget what it's called. I think it's called um, Pastor as Public Theologian, I think is the name of the book. We'll link to that in the show notes, too. Uh, but in this article... Uh, Van Hooser, he uh, points out that as a society, we are simultaneously becoming more post-Christian and more post-literate, meaning that people aren't going to church like they used to, and they're also not reading like they used Mm. to. And so as a result, uh, biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. Every couple of years, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, Lifeway uh, teams up with uh, Ligonier, and they do this uh, state of theology report, and they survey evangelicals who like say, yes, I believe the Bible. Yes, I go to church. Uh, and just to survey their theological beliefs. And an, an alarming number of them, and an increasing measure each time they do this, are, they actually hold to like straight up heretical right. views, yeah, and they they are Jesus believing Christians who go to church on Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, but they just believe these views that uh, that we've had church councils about, and we're like, yeah, that is absolutely heresy, and so that's just um, 
a sign of the biblical illiteracy that these people, it's not that they um, don't have a concern for their faith. It's just that they haven't been properly formed in the theological realities that buttress that faith. And so Van Hooser, he argues that we need pastors who are really adept theologians who can be both pastoral and theologically robust in a way that they communicate everything. And so he, he writes this in the article. He says, quote, Arguably the most important crisis pastor theologians must confront is biblical illiteracy in the church. Pastor theologians are the catalysts of Christian literacy who minister the word in part by helping people read it as their primary identity narrative. So Van Hooser, he, he doesn't say it explicitly in this article, but the implication is that a pastor should be pretty well-read and well-studied when it comes to theology, and the natural outworking of that would be that he has some kind of seminary training uh, and, and some, some kind of formal training in a learning institution. And I think of what a lot of what uh, Van Hooser says is true, but I don't necessarily think that that means that all pastors must see themselves as pastor theologians. Um, and I can't say for certain. I'd have to do more reading into other things he's written about this, but I, Van Hooser might even agree with me uh, on this point. But I don't think that the pastor theologian is the universal um, moniker that we should impose upon all pastors of, of all churches. Uh, because yes, we do need people in our churches who are, have some serious theological chops, uh, who can be consulted, who can be deferred to and listened to. Um, but I don't think that uh, teaching theology is the only thing that a pastor should do to form their people. In fact, Paul, when he talks uh, about the leaders that God has given to the church, he talks about multiple different types of leaders that are leading the church forward. And he talks about this in Ephesians 4, verses uh, 11 through 13. And it says, And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so, I don't know if you caught it there, but Paul mentions five different types of leaders that Jesus has given to the church. He's given us apostles, and these are the people who are starting new things. These are the entrepreneurial people. They plant churches, they start denominations, they create new networks, they start new movements. Then we have the prophets, the people who speak to the collective conscience of the church. Like, are we living up to the moral and ethical demands that have been placed on us by Jesus? Then you have the evangelists. These are the people who it's like their A1 gift to tell people who don't know Jesus why they should know him and why they should put their faith in him. Then there are the shepherds. These are the people who are like the masters of pastoral care. And then there's the teachers, and that would be the pastor theologians. And so uh, we need all of these folks, and we need to start new things. We need to have a prophetic edge. We need to evangelize. We need to care for the people inside our churches. And yes, we do need good theological training. And uh, all good Christian leaders, I believe, will have at least competency in each of those roles. Uh, But you tend to be really good at one or maybe two of them. And that's just a matter of gifting, right? And so different pastors have different bents and individual churches, they'll tend to take on the personality of their senior pastors. And part of that is just, you know, natural. But it's also why 
uh, we should be really concerned with the plurality of leadership in our local churches so that uh, we maintain some kind of balance. Even if, you know, your church has a particular personality, there should be a balance of, you know, all of these things that are there. And there's a lot of different ways that you can organize that from an organizational standpoint. Um, but all that to be said, not every pastor needs to know Greek and Hebrew. And I would go as far as to argue that if only the master theologians were allowed to be the pastors, a lot of our churches honestly would not make it. Have you ever talked to some of these Greek professors? Yes. I mean, there's some that are very pastoral and very good. And then there are some that are just, you know, yes. they're, they're, they're an academic bookworm. They're not right. really much of a leader. They have a lot to contribute to the church. But if all of our pastors were like that, um, our movement might be somewhat anemic because you need the apostles. You need the evangelists. You need uh, the prophets. Uh, you, you need these other gifts. Right. And not everyone has all of those gifts. Like there's probably no one who has all of those gifts. That's why you need to surround yourself with people and other leaders uh, at the church who have different aspects of those gifts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I just think about the pastors that I've uh, been pastored by or served with. And it's usually like one or two, like I can think of uh, the young adults pastor I had, like his gift was teaching and uh, being prophetic. And like that was his, you know, what he was really good at. Uh, an, another pastor that I served under for a long time, his gifts were uh, shepherding and evangelism. And like you could definitely see it because uh, just you, as good, like as good as he was at those other, as those things, all the other things he wasn't great at. Mm-hmm. And yet he was still a good pastor. Right. It's just that he was never going to be something that he wasn't uh, because it was outside his gifting. Like he worked yeah. hard at those things to be. Uh, to teach and to uh, be a prophetic prophetic voice when it was needed, um, but it, you know, at the core of who he was, he was he was a shepherd and he was an evangelist, and like that's that was his thing. And so, um, I don't think that he um, his thirty years of uh, pastoring is null and void because he I wouldn't consider him a pastor theologian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though pastor theologians are necessary to the overall health of the church, I think. Yes. Yes. The pastor theologian is the one who should be writing things, but the like shepherd evangelist probably shouldn't be like releasing a ton of books on a particular passage of scripture. Right. Yeah. 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 And so I think that's, a, that's okay. Um, and so not everybody is going to be like that honor student in seminary but that doesn't mean that they won't be a great pastoral leader mm-hmm. exactly but at the same time seminary is important right but at the same time it's you don't not. necessarily have to go <laughs> exactly so as someone who's been to seminary how would you counsel someone who's maybe a church leader an aspiring church leader um who uh is considering whether to go like what would you say to them like here's here's a reason why you wouldn't want to go here's a reason why you wouldn't want to go um i think a seminary would be good for anyone who is considering a leadership position within ministry uh but that's not always a viable option right so is it mission critical for them um if they desire to be a teaching pastor um i would um, really urge for them to go to seminary um if they m- have more of a heart for like the pastoral care side of things, I would say it's not as mission critical, but the things that you have to weigh is it's a very real financial cost behind seminary. And there's a very and it's a real human cost. too. Yeah. There's, 
there's a time cost. And I mean, for the five years we were in seminary, um, I don't think I had many friends because I was working full time and went to seminary full time. And that was my life for five years, which is not a small cost um, at all. Right. So somebody might not be in a position to be able to give that kind of time out of their life for five years. Uh, I couldn't imagine giving that kind of time in my life right now as I'm raising oh, yeah, three no young kids like that yeah. would be that would be detrimental to my family to pursue that path right now. Right. Right. Uh, so I think there's just things to weigh. Um, in general, if you have the opportunity to go, I would urge this person to go if they are pursuing any kind of leadership position within ministry. Um, but would I say they absolutely have to go or else they're not going to be a good leader? No. Um, I would ask them like <laughs> overall in your life, do you have the time for this and do you have the finances for this? Um, and if the answer to those things are no, then I would say like, just make sure you surround yourself with other experienced church leaders. Um, definitely build out your Amazon book list, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and there's other ways to get at those, uh, skills and knowledge. Um, but if you just don't have the time and the money, um, I would say maybe seminary isn't for you right now. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely take a similar approach. I, I'm very pro seminary. I'm very pro MDiv, the the program that we went through, because uh, I just think it's a great program that is just really formative and super helpful. And um, will the things that I learned there will stay with me for the rest of my life. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like, do you like can you count the cost financially mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, time commitment and just like the stress commitment yeah. um, of doing that. Uh, over the course of years. And then like, if you maybe can't uh, commit to any one of those commitments, um, maybe there's a way to, you you know, there's other ways to get trained too. Um, You don't necessarily need to go and do the hundred unit MDiv. You can do an MA if that's a little bit more manageable, MA in uh, theology, or you're still going to get a lot of the the good stuff. You won't get as much as the pastoral training, but you'll still get a lot of the hermeneutical training, the exegetical training, uh, spiritual formation as well. Um, that all of that will be available to you. There's also certificate programs that you can do. You're really pushing the education. Look at you. (laughs) And there's also, and there's also just like different networks that you can be a part of. Like I know that like, um, going to conferences or, uh, being a part of, uh, like, like church planting networks. Like these are all people who are pastors who are coming together and, uh, offering resources to one another. Mm-hmm. They're bringing the collective things that they're reading and they're learning and they're experiencing. Yeah. Uh, so I would say in lieu of seminary, if you can't do that, um, just make sure that you're just being intentional about ongoing uh, formation then that you're not trying to educate yourself i guess right is the thing like it's yeah. going to take a lot of self-initiative but like mm-hmm. you're not uh just trying to uh curate your own amazon book list yes. and just read it and then think like okay i've That's got it. it right like that needs to be happening in community and it's if you're serving in ministry it's often going to be a community that's outside your local church because for a lot of people who are leading uh, already, they're they're one of, if not the most knowledgeable person mm-hmm. in that congregation. Mm-hmm. And they need to take, you know, help that congregation go to the next level yeah. of their own formation. So you need to broaden out your your viewpoint to mm-hmm. other people to help you level up your formation and your yeah. knowledge and your experience that you can then lead your church in. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, finding groups outside of your church, especially if you're already a leader in that church, I think is pretty critical. Um, and also not trying to think that you can self-educate, like isolate your process of formation and education. Um, I'm thinking particularly of a preaching book that we read, which is really good. It's a really good preaching book. Um, but I sat there and I read it and then I like put together something. Uh, and then I went to class and it was like, what about this element and this element? I was like, yeah, that's, that's in there. And they're like, no, it's not in there. So <laughs> it's like, no, but it, it really is. This like is, you think it is, but it's this, not. I, I, I followed the model that the book gave me and here I am, but I actually didn't arrive at that process correctly. So the need for other people around you still is incredibly critical. And, um, in your own process of self-formation is being aware of where your weaknesses are um, and probably maybe paying a little bit more attention to those areas as you're trying to build your own formation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's all good wisdom. Uh, I think at the end of the day, though, in the church, we have to be really careful not to gatekeep where Jesus never told us to put up a gate. Mm. Yeah. Like the New like Testament where the disciples. Is in seminary. Right. Now. No. They were fishermen. Yeah. You think like, you think about what kind of education were they receiving it within their own time. They were not the educated people. Right. Yeah. When you think about um the Pentecost speech and um was it at Pentecost or was it when the uh they were brought before the Sanhedrin? One of those times. They remarked that uh Peter and John they're like these are a couple of uneducated fishermen. Yes. Like yeah. how are they theologizing mm -hmm. us under the table? I don't understand mm -hmm. how this is happening. And they because they didn't have that formalized theological training at right. that point. Uh and so yeah, we need to not gatekeep where Jesus never told us to put up a gate. Because uh, the New Testament is clear that the the main gate that we're supposed to keep is around character, and then secondarily around competence, but mainly character. Uh, competence isn't nothing, uh, but competence is really just being able to understand and communicate uh, sound teaching on essential Christian doctrines, which you don't need to go to seminary to to get a handle on those things necessarily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so after that good character and competency the rest in terms of training is is more a matter of like wisdom and prudence and that's important uh but in that wisdom we can't let ourselves devolve into credentialism like a master of divinity is good but a master of divinity a great pastor doesn't maketh as proud as i am of my master of divinity i guess that's not the trump card in terms of like christian leadership no i know plenty of people who have a master's of divinity and went through the course with me and i thought hmm you said i would not, not sure. go to your church well i, I just thought go. like i'm not sure you're called to be a pastor <laughs> uh great work in greek fantastic but i'm not sure you should be pastoring a church yeah right so yeah and for those who didn't go to seminary and those who did, like the church is meant to be diverse mm. and church Even leadership area, is meant right. to be diverse, like not just in terms of culture, but in terms even of gifting and academic background. Yeah. Like, like that's a pretty low bar of diversity when you're going uh, for a diverse church. Uh, so when it's all said and done, I'm very pro seminary, um, but it's not everything. And I would say it's not even the main thing. 
Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The content we feed our minds will eventually show up in our lives. If we feed our minds the lies and confusion of this world, our lives will begin to reflect worldliness. But if we feed our minds the truth of the gospel, our lives will start to reflect the heart and character of Jesus. I'm John Stonge, and each week I host the Dwell on These Things podcast, where we take a deep look at the Word of God and learn what it means to apply it to our lives. We don't skip difficult passages, and we don't gloss over the truth. If you're looking for a show that will put your mind in a better place and help you understand God's Word with more clarity, you can listen to the Dwell on These Things podcast at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.